0: South of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McLeanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 335 covering the week of November 28th through December 2nd, 2022. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab and our Facebook pages, and subscribe to our YouTube page. YouTube page is great because, of course, it has all of our videos on it from our previous lectures, our Bill U videos. It's just a wonderful treasury of content. And there are some really good lectures out there that you should be listening to. And, of course, all of that is free of charge. All that we do, our website, our podcast, our lectures online, all of that is free of charge. And so your donations keep those things happening. If you do love the Institute, of course, we just had Giving Tuesday this past week, uh, and we are you are going to be getting some material from us soliciting donations. It's that time of the year if you are a subscriber to any nonprofit organization. November and December are heavy months for asking for money because you're trying to make your tax preparations. But if you are in the giving mood and you do like our content you like what we do, please consider a tax-deductible do- donation to the Abbeville Institute. We cannot do any of this. Without you, it all costs money. And so if you've got 5 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month, uh, we appreciate it. If you want to give a one-time donation, we appreciate that. If you want to give more than that, of course, we'll gladly take that and uh, be very appreciative of your generous contribution. But uh, we are uh, vastly underfunded compared to other uh, organizations that do what we do. And, of course, the, our opponents have a lot more money And so it's important to note that Uh, we try very hard to punch higher than our weight class. And we do a pretty good job of that, but there are people that are better funder than we do, and we are. And so we do appreciate your contributions if you can make those. Of course, you can also do some other things that are painless. You can make us your preferred charity at Amazon Smile. So every time you shop at Amazon, we get a few pennies of that. You can go and click that super thanks button under the video if you're watching on YouTube. You can throw a few pennies our way that way if you want. Um, so these are some things you can do. Also, we do have a free mobile app. Uh, it should be, this should be straightened out. We had a little issue with Apple, not because of any nefarious reasons, but because of some background uh, software things. But uh, hopefully that'll be straightened out soon. So you can get it on Google Play. If you're an Apple or an iOS user, hopefully that will be straightened out soon. So you can get it on Apple. Um, a lot of a lot of great ways out there to access our content. Of course, give us that email address at abbevilleinstitute.org, abbeville institute.org, A B B E V I L L E. A B B E V I L L E Institute.org. And you get a free ebook, exploring the Southern Tradition, and you get our emails Monday through Friday. Uh, and that's how we keep in contact with you. So please don't unsubscribe from that. Make sure that you whitelist us so your emails the email's not blocked. Um, we do appreciate it if you can. Uh, contact us and have communication with us that way. It's the best way to do it. Now, of course, we're coming back from a week off. Uh, We had a very brief podcast last week and a couple of articles last week on Thanksgiving. Uh, This is our first full week back, and we'll have a couple more weeks before we take another break for the end of the year. We will not have any new content, really, uh, beginning the week of December 19th uh, until the first week of January. So, It'll be about two weeks if we don't have anything new. There won't be any podcast during those weeks. So we've got about two weeks left of content. And uh, that's, I mean, we we always do this. We always take a couple of weeks off for for the holiday season. So I hope you have a very good and restful Thanksgiving uh, and that you'll have a very good and restful Christmas as well. But let's talk about the material for this week. This is an interesting week. We focus a lot on Southern women. In fact, we had uh, two pieces about Southern women and um, and one and two pieces written by Southern women. So um, it's a it it's an interesting week. Um, the first piece I want to focus on is a lecture that Karen Stokes gave at our 2011. I think it was 2011. Let me go back and look. it might have been 2014. Uh, 2011. Excuse me. Yeah, 2011 summer school and. Uh, the title of the piece is The Political Economy and Social Thought of Louisa S. McCord. Now, if you're not familiar with Louisa McCord, you should be. Uh, there are a couple of very important antebellum Southern women. McCord was one of them, Augusta Jane Evans was another, uh, who were pretty popular uh, throughout the United States. Uh, Evans, Augusta, Jane's, Augusta Jane Evans, had the most popular book in the United States in 1866, St. Elmo. And in fact, the uh, the plantation that she wrote that about, it's in Columbus, Georgia. It's not really much of a plant. It's in the middle of the city now. But it was on the outskirts of town And, and when she wrote the book. it was in, The name of the plantation was El Dorado at that time, and they renamed it St. Elmo in honor of the book because it was a bestseller. Uh, Wilson was very much someone who believed in promoting... The Southern tradition and creating a unified Southern culture. In fact, during the war, she talked about how she was uh, interested in using literature as a glue for the Southern people. And everyone in the South knew that the region was not monolithic. There were there were certainly, you know, people that had differing views on all kinds of things in the South. It wasn't just this place where everyone thought the same way. And even on things like slavery and race, I mean, there were there were there were certainly uh, differences of opinion on those particular issues throughout the South. But they all had shared a a common set in her mind of core beliefs that could be best articulated through uh, literature. Uh, we know that you know Southerners were not monolithic in religion. There were different, many different denominations in the South. But all of these things could be best expressed and, again, glued together through literature. And she thought if there was this vibrant artistic community in the South, whether it was through literature or art, architecture, music, these kind of things would bring a people together. And that's an interesting position, of course, that she's taking during the war. And I'll get to Louisa McCord in a minute. Um, but she's trying she's understanding the role of culture, of similarities in culture, and what that means for a people. And she certainly believed that there was a southern people. Uh, there was a southern nation, so to speak. We see that in the South today, the things that hold it together are these kind of cultural things, whether it's music or food. Uh, food is something that Southerners all recognize, and it's it's cross. It doesn't matter your race or anything. People in the South eat the same food, um, to to varying degrees, but they eat the same food, and um, they understand the same cultural things. You know, now it's it's uh, football. You know, football is. If you've never lived in the South, and you've never been part of college football season in the South, it's something completely different than you see anywhere else in the United States. Um, if you watch a football game in California, UCLA against USC, which is a, you know, a huge rivalry right, in California, means nothing. It's nothing like the Iron Bowl of, of Alabama versus Auburn. Uh, nothing. In fact, the Iron Bowl is the pinnacle of a rivalry game. Uh, and it doesn't matter if one team's bad and one team's good. It is going to be packed out. It's bigger than Ohio State, Michigan. So Southerners rally around this identification of state and place you know, through, through football. So there's these cultural things that put people together in the South. Uh, now, as far as McCord, McCord is, was different than, uh, than Evans. In this way, McCord was an author. She wrote plays. She wrote poetry. And just about anybody who wrote did those things in the 19th century. But she also was interested in economics and political theology. Or political theology. Uh, political philosophy. I'm, I'm, my mind is moving to religion. She also um, wrote on political philosophy and, and, uh, and economics. In fact, she translated Frederick Bastier, which is very interesting. Bastier is a pretty popular person among libertarian Austrian economics. Uh, And uh, McCord was writing about Bastier in the middle of the 19th century, translating his work. And um, these are. This is amazing because McCord was ahead of her time. You often get this perspective in the South that southerners believe that women should just uh, do nothing and sit in the plantation and fan themselves all day and not have a brain and not think about anything. But when you go out and you actually read letters and uh, you read what southern men said about women, they enjoyed the company of intelligent women. In fact, It's been argued that the South had more college-educated women than any other section in the United States. They would go to finishing schools, and they would learn, not just uh, the manners and customs of Southern society, but they would also be educated. Now, they weren't expected to use this in a profession. That was for men. But they were educated, and they were dominant figures in Southern society. And again, you go back to someone like Evans... In Saint Elmo, if you read that book, first of all, McCord and uh, Evans were very hard on communists. They didn't like them at all. They didn't like they didn't like 19th century feminists. They thought they were destructive to real femininity. They thought they were destructive uh, to a stable society, and of course, a woman's role as a mother and as a as a stabilizing force in the house women were supposed to be that force that kept society together. This is what Evans talks about in St. Elmo. She's very educated. In fact, to read that book, if you're going to need a dictionary handy and have some deep understanding of history because she is very well educated in those areas. And uh, if you if you read it, I mean, her point was that... Uh, the character is Edna Earle is her name. But the point is that you know, well-educated women are very powerful and strong. They don't have to have a career. They don't have to be what they call blue stockings. Uh, but they can be powerful forces in society. They didn't need to be involved in politics because they are already involved in it at home. And this is kind of the Spartan attitude of women. You know, we, we, are, we can rule men because we're, we're mothers of men was the idea. And so you would create this very masculine society but would be softened at least a a, a tad by the role of women in it. And uh, in the book St. Elmo, uh, Edna Earle is uh, fascinated with a man who is a scoundrel and she eventually gets him to convert to Christianity and he tames his ways and he is essentially softened by her his desire to be with Edna Earle. So it's women controlling the way that society functions. This is usually the dirty little secret in society. Women control the way society functions, even if men dominate. Because if women make things hard on men, men will then respond. And that is, again, something that we don't even think about in modern society anymore. And so... When you go back to the piece that uh, Casey Chalk wrote on Monday, uh, Those Pesky Southern Women, he brings this up. In fact, his last paragraph is really interesting. He says, "Uh, I don't know what the future holds for Southern women. As a son, husband, and father of Southern women, I'm, of course, biased. They've certainly been a blessing to me. I am, for one, quite glad to know Southern women are a thorn in the side of elitists attempting to flatten the world into one big, homogenous, progressivist dystopia in which careers matter more than children and self-actualization more than God. For despite all the bluster about multicultural tolerance, that's precisely what people like Atia seem to desire. And he's speaking of a progressive columnist who... um, says things like at the beginning, um, you know, Southern white women are the foot lady foot soldiers, of the GOP's agenda. We will not get free until that changes. Um, you know, she is certainly, um, very hard on the South and Southern women in general, particularly Southern white women. Um, but this is an, an interesting situation. Uh, she, she, um, you know, Atiyah calls herself, you know, very proud Georgian, uh, but um, she, of course, is playing identity politics. Now, that's part of where the piece on Thursday fits in, and it's a piece by Barbara Marthal. If you don't know who Barbara Marthal is, she's spoken at our conferences several times. She's written for our website uh, a lot, um, and she is African-American. And she goes to reenactments. She's very proud of her past. She was, her family were what she calls free people of color. Um, And she likes to talk about the complexity of Southern society, but yet, uh, that in that complexity, of course, there were common things. And she doesn't like to be pigeonholed into a victim. She doesn't like to have people that are in her family characterized as villains. It's this way that and what Casey Chalk was talking about, this victim mentality that Barbara Martha refuses to subscribe to. And if you've ever seen her talks, and we have several of them out there on YouTube. Again, I mentioned YouTube, where you can go and watch these old uh, lectures that we have. If you've ever seen her talks, She's a great storyteller and she's very interested in stories and how stories convey uh, certain of course cultural norms and uh, traditions and how they're handed down through generations. This is exactly what women did in in the antebellum and postbellum period up until really we've started seeing the breakdown of traditional society. Uh, she talks about the power of story and her pieces often have this little bit of storytelling in it and they're really good in that way she talks about her family um, and how she did have uh, you know, slaveholders in her family but she was from uh, a group of people that were eventually freed and then settled as free people of color in uh, the upper south her story is fascinating uh, even her her own personal story, her backstory. She was she described herself as a a, a, a uh, very vehement leftist um, who uh, was one of these people that would have been like a Tia, very uh, upset about uh, what was going on in society. Then she started to realize. She actually talks about a book. Uh, That's entitled Black Property Owners in the South. And she starts, she says she realized that there was a much more complex story here that needed to be told about Southern society and different groups in Southern society, and particularly, again, women in Southern society, and how all that worked out. And so you put all these things together. You put Chalk's piece together where he's talking about uh, this, the role of women in society and, and traditional Southern women. That's what he's getting at. And then you look at Louisa McCord, who was in many ways a traditional Southern woman. Now, most women worked hard in the South, and just as they did in the North, particularly on a farm. Uh, they were they were definitely going to work hard. Uh, most women were not Louisa McCord or Augusta Jane Evans, who had time and energy to write the way they did. Now, McCord, fascinatingly enough, I mean her eyesight went bad by her 40s and she couldn't really write anymore because she couldn't see the she couldn't see to write. Uh, We take, again, for granted things like glasses and corrective lenses that help us as we get older, but McCord had a hard time with that because she couldn't see. Of course, her home survived uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, survived the burning of Columbia, but um, she wrote about that and how horrible it was. Uh, But regardless, it's this role of Southern women in society, and again, it's not a patriarchy in terms of, you know, it's going to be a dominant word. Uh, Men are just bossing women around. In fact, in some ways, it worked the exact opposite. You look at the respect that Lee, for example, had for his wife, or Jefferson Davis had for his wife, and just using those, or or Thomas Stonewall Jackson had for his wife, just using these conspicuous leaders in Southern society as examples. Um, Or John C. Calhoun. Um, When you look at the petticoat affair, which if you don't know what that is, and During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, uh, there was a lot of uh, problems in his cabinet because of uh, the women, the wives of the cabinet members, who refused to associate with Peggy Eaton. Peggy Eaton was the wife of John Eaton, who was the Secretary of War, and there was a rumor that Peggy Eaton came from a rather uh, poor upbringing. And what I mean by that is she lived in a tavern, and women in a tavern had a very bad reputation, and so that was the reputation of Peggy Eaton, or and also that she was married, and uh, when John Eaton met her, and there was a scandal there, and so uh, Floride Calhoun refused to associate with her, and the other women of the cabinet did as well, and famously, or you know, anecdotically, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson brought the cabinet together and demanded that they tell their wives that they were going to associate with Peggy Eaton and that they better get on board with that or they can resign. And (laughs) they resigned. And why would they do that? Because they weren't going to go home and tell their wives who they had to associate with. And they weren't going to consider their attack on Peggy Eaton, if it was true, to be invalid. I mean, they thought that you had these norms and customs in, in society and and traditions, and they should be followed. So women, again, having a big role in politics, even if they're not voting, um, they certainly had control of a lot of things in society. And it was said during the war that, you know, the, one of the reasons why Southerners went off to fight in such large numbers is because the women wouldn't talk to them if they didn't. Uh, women were driving that, and parts of... You know, North Alabama, for example, there's all kinds of stories about how the women were more ardent confederates than the men. Uh, same thing in places like New Orleans. We know that uh, the order in New Orleans that uh, said that if women were found supporting the confederacy, they would be treated as ladies of the night, which is essentially opening the door to all kinds of deprivations, was because women kept thumbing their nose at the federal authorities. Women were a strong part of Southern society. It's why statues were dedicated to them after the war. This is not something that was made up. This is not a myth. That culture and those traditions carried through for people like Barbara Marthal, for, of course, Karen Stokes and Louisa McCord, and and here Casey Chalk is writing about it and talking about his wife and mother and grandmother from Virginia and how those traditions were so important, that continuity between generations. Now, the UDC is often excoriated for doing what they did by a bunch of Northerners, or even Southerners who don't like them. Spent a lot of time uh, talking about the UDC and how dangerous they were because they told fake history. Well, women, of course, were seen as the protectors of the traditions. They were seen as those who could defend the men in ways the men could not do for themselves. And part of that was through the telling of a story and passing those stories on through generations. And that's exactly what they were trying to do with monuments and memorials and histories and ensuring that their men, their families, were not going to be run through the mud by women or men from an alien people. We talked about last week in Thanksgiving how New England has certainly dominated America, and that is that happened in many ways through holidays and also histories and schools. But this is what Southern women were not going to allow to happen. They wanted their story to be told, and they wanted their story to be told accurately. And if you look at, this gets into this idea of the lost cause and what it is, they didn't, they didn't shy away from things in that story. Um, they just simply reiterated what people were saying about the North and the South before the war. This is where those Thanksgiving pieces last week also come into play. Because even in the 1840s, in the 1830s, even in the early 1800s, 18-teens, Southerners weren't necessarily on board with this Yankee holiday of Thanksgiving. Because it wasn't traditionally Southern. Now, all that stuff is great. I mean, all these pieces, Louisa McCord, I mean, we could go on just about Louisa McCord for the whole entire podcast. But I want to get to the last two pieces because they're fun too and... Um, again, th- this, this week was really interesting. We had a piece by Jack Marcourt uh, writing about Southern humor in Congress. And uh, Private Allen is, uh, is one of the funniest people. It was considered one of the funniest people ever to be in Congress. And um, there was a time when you would have more humor there than you do today. The people that we elect to Congress now are, are simply boring, uh, to be honest. And not just that. Uh, they're, they're vapid. There's, they're empty suits. There's not really much there between their ears. Uh, they're about image and shock value. But it used to be that Congress really was a place for people to go and have serious debates about, about important issues. And um, to crack a joke here and there. Uh, It's often thought, you know, Abraham Lincoln was this great storyteller, told these funny stories. But there were all kinds of people who told very funny stories and who people considered to be, uh, you know, the life of the party in Congress that would crack a joke and people would laugh. And John Allen, uh, Private John Allen as he called himself, was hilarious. And so um, the story about that is... um, As as Marcourt talks about, he says Allen claimed that in the election he ran against a general from the recent war. In his campaign speeches at the time, Allen told the audience that anyone who had been a general during the recent war should vote for his opponent, but all those who were privates who guarded the generals while they slept should vote for Private John Allen. Allen said he won a landslide victory, and that following the election, the title Private stayed with him throughout the rest of his life. So. He, he was, you know, if you're a general, vote for the general. If you're all the common people, then vote for me. I'm the private. I'm John Allen. I guard the generals. Uh, and um, this is really funny. Um, so, Allen told great stories. Allen was a dedicated and staunch southerner, but he was always someone who was uh, certainly... Uh, Interested in lightening the mood, if the uh, if the opportunity presented itself, and Southerners have always been very interested in comedy. I mean, you look at A. B. Longstreet's Georgia Scenes, which is a great book of uh, frontier comedy. These these things are fantastic, and uh, we should we should respect Southern that part of the Southern tradition and Southern culture is comedy, um, and you know you look at. Uh, You know, Laurel and Hardy, right? Half of that group was Southern. Um, Half of that duo was Southern. So there's all kinds of examples of Southern comedy. Um, And this was a nice piece that showed you that even Southerners in Congress could be funny. And then, of course, the last piece of the week, we have uh, another piece by Chase Steely on uh, part five of his review of the attack on Leviathan. One thing I found interesting about this particular piece, or at least, you know, chapter 13, the def- the dilemma of the Southern liberals. Southerners, again, as I talked about with Evans, were not a, mono- not a theoth- monolithic, excuse me, monolithic people. There are Southern liberals. There are Southern conservatives. There are people that have differing views on all kinds of things in the South. And, um... Davidson was hard on the Southern liberals, Uh, and Davidson actually critiqued uh, these people for being for distorting the Jeffersonian tradition. In fact, um, Seely has this quote: "He says the Southern liberals flew Jeffersonian colors, though Davidson reckoned." them bastard pirates because, quote, the Jefferson of political and economic theory is not the paternal ancestor of the modern Southern liberals who worship consolidation and are likely to think of farmers as yokels. In fact, it can hardly be said that the Southern liberals have any ancestors in the South. Their intellectual pedigree, so far as is American, must be traced out of the northern side of the Potomac. They will discover their family portraits among the New England humanitarians. That's a beautiful quote. Because it speaks to this problem of, you know, where are your intellectual origins? It speaks to the problem of Thanksgiving. It speaks to the problem of, you know, how we think about politics and society in the South. Southerners generally being decentralists. Southerners generally believing in Jeffersonianism. And of course, Davidson was a committed Jeffersonian. As a conservative, not as a liberal. He thought that Jefferson was a conservative. This is the same position that Clyde Wilson took in the 1960s that uh, ran him afoul of a lot of conservatives at the time. And apparently he received a note from Mel Bradford and said, don't worry about it, you're on the right path. And that's because people like Davidson and others had said the exact same thing. Jefferson as conservative, Jefferson as this, voice of people rooted in the soil and very interested in political independence for their own community and their own people and that's decentralization that's federalism and that certainly that commitment to federalism is a, an important part of the southern tradition it's why you know people like McCord she wrote a lot about decentralization and federalism uh, or Evans same thing This is what that particular political principle allowed for, for communities to be communities that reflected the people of their place and not some type of hybrid from somewhere else like New England Thanksgiving. That's the core of all of it. That's what you have to understand about the Southern tradition and where these people are coming from as we look at this stuff in an entirety. All right, it's good to be back in the saddle. We've got, again, another two weeks of material or so at the Abbeville Institute till we shut it down for the year. So I'll see you next week on the Abbeville Institute. See you next